and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. There's a man going round taking names and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and in each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers One hundred million angels singing Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Voices calling, voices crying Some are born and some are dying It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come And the whirlwind is in the thorn tree The virgins are all trimming their wicks The whirlwind is in the thorn tree It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks Till Armageddon, no shalom, no shalom Then the father hen will call his chickens home The wise men will bow down before the throne And at his feet they'll cast their golden crowns When the man comes around Whoever is unjust, let him be unjust still Whoever is righteous, let him be righteous still Whoever is filthy, let him be filthy still Listen to the words long written down When the man comes around Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers One hundred million angels singing Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Voices calling, voices crying Some are born and some are dying It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come And the whirlwind is in the thorn tree The virgins are all trimming their wicks The whirlwind is in the thorn tree It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks In measured a hundred weight and penny pound When the man comes around 
and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and Hell followed with him. Hello everyone, my name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 24th of July. Now firstly I must apologise for my voice which is a little bit more husky than normal. It's one of my Covid symptoms I'm afraid but fortunately I think you should all be safe from catching anything over the airwaves. For today's podcast we go to the first book of the Bible and the story of Abraham. We've heard a song about judgement and that is one element of the story that we're going to be reading. Just one notice for this week, the blessing of the marriage of Charlotte and Mike Kozilovich takes place on Saturday at 1pm in the church. And now our call to worship. Come, let us worship the Lord, the God of Abraham, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us seek God's justice. Let us wonder at God's mercy and grace. Let us worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
Almighty God, as we gather, let us be quiet and find your presence. We rejoice in the mystery of your loving justice. Help us to understand what your love means and how we can share that love with others. You, God, are the centre of our being, the plumb line by which we measure our lives. For you are God of all, and all are your children. You are the promise of what is right and the measure of what is wrong. You are the teacher of love, respect and understanding. In you we find sufficiency and more. It is you, O God, we worship. It is you and your ways we adore. It is you and your giving that shows us how to live our lives. Almighty God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, our prayers we have offered, words spoken, erudite or muddled, thoughts turned, feelings felt, but all of this is naught if we do not live out the yearnings of our praying. All of this is naught if we do not turn our prayers to action. In penitence and sorrow we offer now our lives to you, seeking to know your forgiveness and desiring to live by your ways. Our words, dear God, are so often hollow and empty. Your word is full and forever. Your word promises to forgive us. It assures us of our freedom from past sins, failings, falterings. Let us hear now your word, and may we be set free to live our lives for you. Amen. A reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 18, starting at verse 20. So the Lord told Abraham, I have heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah, because their sin is so flagrant. I am going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I have heard. If not, I want to know. The other men turned and headed towards Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham. Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find fifty righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why, you'd be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the Lord replied, If I find fifty righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the entire city for their sake. Then Abraham spoke again. Since I have begun, let me speak further to my Lord, even though I am but dust and ashes. Suppose there are only forty-five righteous people rather than fifty. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five righteous people there. Then Abraham pressed his request further. Suppose there are only forty. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of the forty. Please don't be angry, my Lord, Abraham pleaded. Let me speak. Suppose only thirty righteous people are found. And the Lord replied, I'll not destroy it if I find thirty. Then Abraham said, since I have dared to speak to the Lord, let me continue. Suppose there are only twenty. And the Lord replied, then I will not destroy it for the sake of the twenty. Finally, Abraham said, Lord, please don't get angry with me if I speak one more time. Suppose only ten are found there. And the Lord replied, then I will not destroy it for the sake of the ten. 
When the Lord had finished his conversation with Abraham, he went on his way, and Abraham returned to his tent. People sometimes say that they would like more teaching on prayer. This is not a new request, and the disciples asked the same of Jesus. I wonder what Jesus would have had to say about the prayer that we read in our Old Testament passage and see what lessons it might have for us in our relationship with God. This passage is important because it tells us about the relationship between Abraham and God and regardless of the many times they wandered from God, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were all people who believed that God was someone to whom they could speak and who spoke to them. Abraham comes into the story of Genesis in chapter 11 and it's at the beginning of chapter 12 that God first speaks to him and makes the great promise that will affect all those Jews and Gentiles who come after him. God said to Abraham, as he was called then, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now at the time, Abraham was living in what is now Syria, but he had already travelled northwest with his father from present-day Iraq. Now God called him to continue around what we call the Fertile Crescent and to make his home in Canaan. In fact, Canaan wasn't all it was cracked up to be when Abraham arrived there, and so he took the family on to Egypt. First of all, things went pretty well in Egypt, and Abraham was given cattle and slaves by Pharaoh, but unfortunately he later got into a spot of bother and was asked to leave the country. It was all an unfortunate misunderstanding surrounding Abraham's wife Sarah. Abraham's wife was a good-looking woman, and this worried Abraham. Abraham was worried because he thought that if one of the Egyptians took a fancy to her and knew that she was married to him, that he might go the same way as poor old Uriah, the wife of Bathsheba, after whom King David lusted. Abraham wasn't about to let that happen to him, so he did what any sensible man would do. He told everyone that Sarah was his sister. Now this was a double whammy. Sarah got plenty of attention, and Abraham got as many donkeys as he wanted because everyone in Egypt wanted to be his friend. But when Pharaoh, who had a particular crush on Sarah, found out that he had been whining and dining another man's wife, the two of them were sent packing, though Abraham was allowed to keep the donkeys. At that time, Abraham had no children of his own, but he did have his nephew Lot, the son of his deceased brother. Lot had his own animals, and the land where they settled wouldn't provide them with sufficient grazing. The answer seemed to be that they should split up. Abraham gave Lot first choice of where he would go, and he chose the land to the east of where they were, the plain in which Sodom was located. It's after Lot made his choice that we are first told of the reputation of the people of Sodom. Now all his readers would have known about Sodom, and it's as if the storyteller is saying, Lot actually chose to live there? Time went on and God's promise to Abraham seemed somewhat hollow, how was he to be the father of a great nation when his wife couldn't even produce one child and she was now well beyond childbearing age? Abraham and Sarah tried to take the matter into their own hands and Sarah's slave girl conceived and gave birth to a child by Abraham. But this wasn't how God was going to bring his plan to fruition. God told Abraham that he would now be called Abraham, 
which is fortunate because I find it difficult swapping between the two names. I can now focus solely on Abraham. And he promised that Sarah would bear a son. The messengers who told Abraham and Sarah how they would have a son, Isaac, were also the focus of the situation that led to the destruction of Sodom. After they delivered their message, the men travelled on their way towards Sodom. And the passage we read today presupposes the wickedness of the people there, although we've yet to be given any evidence. We need to read beyond our passage to find out what these people were like. The sin of Sodom has gone down in history as that of homosexuality. And it's easy to see why this is the case. But the easy answer, as I've often said before, is not always the right answer. Did God destroy Sodom because its men were keen on musicals and overly interested in interior decorating? Or was there something else? If Sodom was so riddled by homosexuality, could not God simply have waited for the city to die out through a lack of natural reproduction? We've joined the story halfway through, as you might remember that there were three messengers who visited Abraham to tell him that Sarah would bear a son. When the messengers left Abraham, their journey took them towards Sodom. The events that unfolded in Sodom on the night the messengers arrived suggest a community that was lawless and in which the strong preyed upon the weak and in which the stranger in their midst was fair game. When the messengers arrived in Sodom, they found Lot by the city gate, the place where the elders of the community met to discuss business. Lot invited them to spend the night at his home. At first they demurred, but at Lot's insistence, the words have the same sense of his having twisted their arms, they went home with him. During the evening things turned ugly as a group of men surrounded Lot's house and demanded that the visitors be sent out to them. While these events preceded by some centuries the giving of the law to Israel, we know that homosexual acts were prohibited under the law of Moses. This wasn't always the case amongst Israel's neighbours, and it was one of the ways in which Israel was distinctive in both Old and New Testament times. But this was not about sexual predilections. It was about a sexual act being used as a means of oppression. This was gang rape, and it was almost by the by that the crime was committed by men against men. In the commentary that I use on Genesis, the laissez-faire attitude of Gentiles towards homosexuality was mentioned, but then distinguished from what happened in Sodom. The commentator ended by saying, rather unnecessarily, you might think, that gang rape was completely at odds with the norms of oriental hospitality. Who knew? If we want to find modern parallels to what happened at Sodom, we should look at the widespread use of rape as a weapon in our days. Homosexual rape is not uncommon in Latin American countries and in British prisons, where in both settings it's about one or more people oppressing another. In situations of intertribal and civil war, the rape of women has been used as a means of terrorising a community. Rape has been used as one means among many in the campaign of genocide that was waged by ISIS against people they saw as heretics in Syria and Iraq. And it's gang rape as a means of violent oppression that we find in the doomed city of Sodom. Lot has so far been shown to be a man who makes bad choices with regard to acquiring real estate, but here he shows himself to be a man of some courage. Sensing the mood of the townspeople, Lot went out to them and closed the door behind him. In so doing, he prevented their entry, but also cut off his own escape. He tried to reason with them and then did something that seems pretty extraordinary to us. 
he offered his own teenage daughters in exchange for the safe passage of his guests. Hospitality was of such importance in the society in which this story was set and told that a man would sacrifice his own daughters to a mob rather than endanger his guests. But this seems not to have done the trick as the townspeople pushed past him to get at the door while jeering at him, an immigrant, for standing in their way. But then God intervened. The men were blinded, enabling Lot and his guests to escape from their clutches. But the messenger's true purpose was now revealed, to destroy Sodom and its inhabitants. They told Lot to gather his family together and run to the hills. Lot's son-in-law couldn't be persuaded of the need for this and stayed, suffering the fate of their countrymen who were destroyed with the city. So Lot, his wife and his daughters escaped Sodom. But Lot's wife was struck down as she chose to look back at the life she was leaving behind. The people of Sodom were under the judgment of God for their wickedness, an example of which we've now seen. God had revealed to Abraham that the solution was to destroy the city and its inhabitants. But Abraham, perhaps spurred on by the knowledge that his useless nephew lived there, tried to intercede with God in order that God might be merciful. We shouldn't take too literally the description of God in heaven having received reports from earth about Sodom and Gomorrah and coming down to check it out for himself. This sort of anthropomorphic language is not uncommon in parts of the Old Testament, and we shouldn't think that God A was not normally present with his people, nor B that he needed to be told what was going on. This way of speaking of God is the first clue towards our understanding of what happens when we pray. What Genesis 18 verses 20 and 21 tell us is that God hears the cry of his people and that he acts accordingly. We're also reminded that it's part of God's nature to deal justly, to uphold the righteous and to punish the wicked. And this desire for justice runs through the Old Testament and the need for human judges to punish the wicked and take the side of the innocent is a given. And it is this aspect of God's nature to which Abraham appeals when he asks of God, Will you really sweep away innocent and wicked together? Abraham then goes into the first stage of his negotiation. What if there were 50 innocent people in Sodom? Would you really sacrifice them for the sake of punishing the wicked? And God agrees. He will not destroy Sodom if 50 innocent people are found. What about 45? Okay, what about 40? I've never quite worked out how an auctioneer decides by what increments he'll increase the bidding. Abraham decides that his opening price will be 50. Would that be maybe half the inhabitants of Sodom? He then advances his bidding by five each time until he reaches a deal on 40. For some reason, he now jumps to 30 people. But Abraham, perhaps realising that he's taking a gamble at this stage, and before he asks for 30 people, he pleads with God not to be angry with his pushing him further. But after 30 goes okay, albeit with a fairly curt reply, Abraham goes for 20. Okay, I'll spare the city if I find 20. 10? asks Abraham. Okay, I'll hold on 10. And then at that point, Abraham sticks. The conversation is over. God goes away and Abraham goes home. Well, why stop at 10? It seems that at 20, something gave Abraham the strong impression that God believed that Abraham really was now pushing his luck. And so when he asked for 10, Abraham promised that that was going to be his last request. Despite Abraham's reading the signs of God's patience starting to wear thin, we're left with the question that the Bible doesn't answer. What would happen if there were between one and nine innocent people 
in Sodom? Well, the answer to this question comes in what we now know happened in Sodom. We are told that all of the men in the city, young and old, everyone without exception, were in the crowd that surrounded Lot's house. Because of the nature of what the crowd was promising to do to Lot's visitors, the expression men of Sodom seems justified. But this is an occasion when we might want to read men as people, in that there is no suggestion that the women of Sodom were less wicked than their menfolk. That God was willing to allow poor dopey Lot to escape together with his family suggests that he would have spared any who were innocent of the wickedness that was rife in Sodom, but none was found. They were all guilty and would all be punished. We believe that God is moved by the cries of the oppressed, and here we have the written evidence. God hears and acts according to the prayers of his people. Prayer is about meeting with God. It's not something we should just do on Sundays or even when we have special times of communication with God during the rest of the week. It's about meeting with God as Abraham met with God and bringing to him the thoughts of our hearts. Our task as Christian people is not simply to bring our desires for ourselves, but, like Abraham, to bring to God the needs of the world, to be intercessors for our world. Other prophets prayed for Israel, but Abraham prays for those who were not his own people those who would be at many times in Israel's history, their enemies. God promises that in Abraham all nations will be blessed, and it is as if the blessing starts here, with Abraham interceding on their behalf. God's blessing, as well as his judgment, is universal. All people, whether Jews or Gentiles, can expect equal justice. We're called to pray for, to plead for our world. Christians, Jews, Muslims, pagans, those of no faith at all. God's love and justice extends to all. We've looked here at a story about prayer, a slightly unconventional prayer, but a a story about prayer in that it's about communicating with God. But it doesn't seem to concur with the ideas about prayer that we learn in the New Testament. In this Old Testament passage, and in other Old Testament passages, prayer is a conversation. In the Old Testament, we find that human beings are involved in a dialogue. They are in a conversation with God. The New Testament appears to take a different view. Here, God's voice on the other side of the prayer is implied. It's not as evident in the New Testament as it is in the Old. Let's take an example of the prayers that Jesus prayed in Gethsemane on the night before he was executed. My father... If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then a second time, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Was the answer from God simply silence? Was Jesus waiting like the condemned man in the execution chamber for the phone call that never came from the governor's office? Or did the answer come in a voice that only Jesus heard? I suspect that of these two options, most of us would side with the second. While many of us were witness to having heard God speak, few of us would claim that God has spoken audibly. And in this sense, the prayers of the New Testament are closer to our own experience of prayer. We even use the prayer that Jesus used to teach his disciples on the subject, and many of the formal prayers that we use come from the letters of Paul. This greater familiarity with the style of prayer of the New Testament could make us miss what the New Testament shares in common with the Old. I've already suggested that the prayers of the Old Testament are more personal in that we often hear God's voice as well as that of the human being. 
Yet when Jesus taught us how to pray, he instructed that we should pray about the things closest to our hearts, what we would eat that day, the sins that weigh us down and the grievances that we hold against other people. The prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane was the most earthy of all prayers. It was a get-me-out-of-here prayer. What this prayer of Abraham reminds us is that there is someone at the other end of the line. The prayers that we offer are not simply sent off into the ether or like a message in a bottle in the hope that someone somewhere might hear it. No, we are praying to a person, not a human being, but a person nonetheless. We are praying to a person and in the prayers of the Old Testament and in the face of Jesus, we see who that person is. Prayer changes things, it is said. Well, this story tells us that prayer also changes God in that God is shown to change his mind. Thirty-five times in the Old Testament we read about God having changed his mind. Thirty-five times God was intent on one course of action and through the intercession of one of his creatures he was moved to a different action. With a bit of imagination we can see that this idea that God is persuadable can raise more questions than perhaps it answers. For example, why is God persuaded on some occasions but not on others? I don't know that Abraham's prayer helps us much on this specific point. However, overall I believe that Abraham has been able to point us towards an understanding of prayer which is that we are in conversation with not just the creator of all that is but one who is also our loving father who has shown himself to us in the face of his son. So how does prayer work? Well, I have to confess I'm not sure I know, but I do know that it is what God wants us to do. God wants us to share our lives, our joys, our sorrows and our needs with him. How God deals with prayer is more than I need to know. But as we read today, God wants us to pray and he is also moved by our prayers. And maybe that is all we need to know.
Let us pray. Our prayers for others bring us to our knees in gratitude for what we have and in desiring for the needs of those around us. Holy Spirit of God, hear our prayer. Having experienced heat waves which flawed and discomforted so many of us this week, we pray for all those across the world who daily have to deal with such temperature extremes. Those whose houses are flimsy and unstable and uninsulated against cold or heat. Those who have no place to find retreat and rest from the heat. Lands become parched more readily and crops wither. Somalia, Ethiopia and Kenya are facing extreme hunger if rains don't come soon. May we and all the world find ways to support one another and reduce our impact on the climate, that all, now and in the future, may live more sustainable, healthy lives with food enough for the day. For all those who work in social care and the health services in our country and around the world, where underfunding, lack of resources, lack of support and misuse and abuse by so many causes stress to staff, deteriorating care at crisis times, delayed diagnosis and insufficient support. We pray for those who work, who plan for, who fund and who need to use such services. For governments and regimes around the globe who find themselves in turmoil, we pray for a wider recognition of the needs of all and seek equality and fairness for all humanity. We pray that we may, in our small way, be part of the solution. For those who seek to flee corrupt and violent regimes and who put themselves in danger to simply find a better way of life, may they find welcome, care, love, support and guidance as they journey. For those without faith or moral compass, who do not seek the kingdom of God, the support and love of God, who do not seek or know the burning of the Holy Spirit in their lives. We pray they may see the spark in others and be drawn to faith and find the love and comfort that faith can bring. For those who still work tirelessly on COVID research and prevention, for those who diagnose and nurse, who support and care for those infected, for those who still need to shield to keep safe and virus free. For those who suffer from long COVID and all whose mental health has been impacted by the virus and the change in our way of life. Those who struggled with lockdowns and who find it hard to rejoin society. Who have become reclusive and fearful of being in crowds. For the lost, the lonely, the ill, the dying and the bereaved. That in times of pain, confusion and grief... They may find comfort in God, in family, friends or neighbour, in a touch, a word, a smile or companionable silence. These days, these are our prayers for those whose lives touch our lives, our consciousness, our very being. They are the prayers for the people whose needs weigh heavily upon our hearts and lives. Holy Spirit of God, hear our prayer. Amen.
I was struggling to find a song that fitted our reading today. I was thinking about the story of Lot's wife having been turned into a pillar of salt. But the best I could come up with is Brian Ferry singing about a river of salt. But first, a final prayer. Lord, help us to think before praying and pray before acting. May we see our community and the people who make it up as precious to you and precious to us as we seek to preserve all that is beautiful and build up all that is holy and godly. Amen. Will I see my love again? 